decoded. Welcome to this episode of Founder Tech Decoded. This is quite an unusual episode as I've decided to turn the mic on myself and for the first time share my founder's story um, both sort of past, present, and hopefully future, and how it's led to the creation of Blackbox as a pioneering piece of founder tech. I'm delighted to share this conversation um, and, and be prompted and instigated in this conversation by our head of comms, um, Matt Hussey, um, who is going to um, play the role of, uh, I guess, host, and uh, hopefully put me through my paces and the ringer, the metaphorical ringer, um, to try and um, give you a sense of why we're doing this. Matt, as ever, lovely to talk. Thank you very much, Dan. I'm really looking forward to uh, yeah, getting under the skin of of your journey and understanding, you know, what what brought all of this to life. Well, with a slight interpretation, I hand the mic um, over to you, my friend. Thank you very much, Dan. So, you know, as with all great stories, uh, let's start from the beginning, not the, the absolute beginning, but tell me about your kind of first forays into, you know, startup world. Well, I guess they, they start um, before I kind of got into startups and tech. Um, I was working at record labels, um, probably at the time the best record label in the world, Interscope, um, run by Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre, um, and they were building it basically as a startup. And I found myself at 21, 22, basically being the international point person, marketing person for Interscope. Um, if you want to learn about Interscope, watch the Defiant ones on Netflix. It's a, it's a documentary all about that. The first couple of episodes all sort of talk about its formation. But basically, that was me, some Jimmy and a t- Dre and a team in uh, the US, um, a boss. And it was basically like being in a startup, but around exceptional artists. And it was like a crash course in talent. Um, they have this phrase and it comes up in the documentary that great can come from anywhere. Um, and the idea is that, you know, if you're, if you're running and you're trying to nurture talent, you don't really know ahead of yourself quite what you're looking for. Um, and you can't really project onto that talent. Um, bearing in mind, we're talking pre-digital here. So we're talking in the late nineties when there wasn't the, the data or the stats to measure talent. That's a whole other conversation. Um, but it showed me, so working with artists uh, like Marilyn Manson, no doubt, Fred Durst and Limp Biscuit, which has been again in the documentary uh, on the, the Woodstock, that's a whole other conversation. But they had this notion that you don't know um, where Kurt Cobain's going to come from. You know, he's 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 in Aberdeen, a logging town. Uh, he's kind of in, it looks like a dropout kit, and then he reinvents rock music. You know, um, Lady Gaga was on Interscope, Eminem was on Interscope. When I left the label, Eminem was just coming through. You'd never would have thought that you know a white guy. Um, with blonde hair and blue eyes was going to reinvent kind of hip hop or rap or certainly be a dominant figure. Um, And so you just don't know. And so that was like um, a great schooling for for, for understanding that exceptional talent needs to be treated uh, differently. So I guess that's where it it started, um, if if that makes sense. It, it does absolutely, and it's something that you you said a couple of times there. You, you just don't know where greatness comes from. I feel like is is a kind of wonderful um, sort of top line exploration of of not only this chat, but I think sort of like the industry that we're talking about in general, right? Like it's, I think for time immemorial, um, 
startups, founders, VCs, investors of all kinds and colors have always tried to answer that question, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, if you look at now at founders, right, and you look at the, the content being created, the programs, founders are the new rock stars, right? You've got Adam Newman, WeWork, you've got the recent episode of um, uh, on Netflix, The Playlist around Daniel Ek and Spotify. You've got For All the Thoughts, Elizabeth Holmes and, and uh, Theranos, you know, the uh, Travis at Uber. People are fascinated with these characters in the way that they were fascinated, um, you know, with, with rock stars. And I think it's because... They're doing something exceptional, right? They're doing something, they're coming from nowhere. You don't know Adam Newman's going to be Adam Newman before he becomes it in a way. It's very hard to look at his past, his origin story and, and do that. And, and I think what we're looking for is we're looking for people who aren't linear, right? We're looking for people who make one plus one equals seven and a banana, if you know what I mean. Like that they aren't, they aren't working off the general um, inherited maths and logic. And that's in a record label, um, you, you have to work like that. And interestingly, in a record label as well, you get the same failure rate of nine out of 10 failing. So in startup culture, it's widely known that nine out of 10 startups will fail. In the record label, um, nine out of 10 things will fail. So there's something in this kind of equation around talent that is that, that is directly relevant and, and, and related. And, and I do think there are lots of learnings that I took into that may, maybe made my journey slightly unique by starting there. Mm, yeah. And, and I think that, you know, that kind of crucible of, of inspiration, both from like, you know, the, the founders um, of the record label and also the artists that you watched, you know, what did you take from that experience and, and where did you take it? <laughs> so, I was closely involved with sort of Marilyn Manson as, as the, the rise of, you know, um, of his arc, of his story from sort of very small club shows to stadiums. And I got to hang out with him a little bit as a kid. Um, as a kid, you know, I was 20, 21, 22. I'm 47 now, so it feels like that. Um, but I remember him sort of inventing himself and we were part of him inventing himself, you know. So he lived in Charles Manson's house, um, the one featured in the Quentin Tarantino uh, Hollywood movie, um, because he wanted the mythology of that. You know, his name is a construct of um, Marilyn Monroe and Charles Manson. Um, and he, you know, consistently would kind of stage manage. So there was one time there was a, there was a bar in London called the Met Bar, which was like the place. And I, my job was to take artists, you know, to it. And he would like walk into the Met Bar, big guy, big platform shoes big orange fluff you know a fluffy coat and he wouldn't get the reaction and he'd walk out and come back in again to get the reaction that he wanted um and why i tell that story is is because it's that it's that management of self there, there's something about the myth that the founder has to step into of themselves to even start so manson is his real name is brian warner so there's something about the transformation from Brian Warner to Marilyn Manson. And he says when he found that name, it was like abracadabra, unlock something. And I think what we're looking for more than ever, more than ever, we're looking for people who can kind of mythically take on the odds, take on the market logic, take on, um, you know, themselves. And those, I think, I think if you haven't, under, if you haven't been around exceptional talent, you, know, you don't really understand that. And I think there's a massive problem in the venture industry that trying to back talent that a lot of them and this has come up on the podcast um quite a lot are fight come from a financial background you know they and they just they are they analyze things through the, the model and the aperture of finance and statistics and metrics and yet the talent that we're talking about 
just you would never have you would never have backed um, if you'd have done it like that. Um, and this the, the, this is the a large amount of the problem of like where 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 do we source talent from and what problems do we enable them to solve and what benefits are those solving those problems genuinely you know genuinely engineering Mm. so this is a it's very much this idea this sort of learning from from watching yeah marilyn manson is this idea that that to become marilyn manson there was not only a kind of i guess a personal change but also a kind of like an industry one, right? They, they, the industry had to sort of see that his origin or his sort of like myth, mythical story, they couldn't include Brian Warner. They could only include sort of Marilyn Manson. So it's this idea of like founders having to go through maybe perhaps not quite as public a version of that, but there is a, some sort of like a, a reinvention of the self and in under a kind of guise of, like you were saying just at the end there, of like a sort of, I need to be appealing to a group of people who spend all their time in and around money. So I, so that kind of reinvention becomes, I need to look appealing in a very narrow way to a bunch of people who look for appealing things in a very narrow sense. If that make, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's why people love the tech sectors, right? They like prop tech, health tech, ed tech, because it gives them permission to then back people in those spaces that's legitimized to the people backing them. You know, and and yeah, I think I think if you think about what a founder has to go to go through, if they're really trying to solve a, pro- a hard problem, um, you know, let's let's just take let's just take Uber because it's 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 an obvious one in in terms of the point I want to illustrate is that to to sit there and think, Do you know what, we're just a couple of guys, you know, in San Francisco, but we're going to transform taxis globally or how people move around cities. That is an outrageous thought. It's outrageous to think that. But you kind of have to um, have that. And that is Brian Warner becoming Marilyn Manson. That's two guys or Daniel, you know, you've just been, as it's illustrated in the show, if it's accurate, you know, he's a guy who's a coder around advertising software to think, do you know what? I can take on, you know, 100 years of legacy in the music industry. No problem at all. There's something in that kind of mythic leap that is that is that is very interesting and doesn't get talked about a lot other than there's this myth of the founder and no one really quite knows what that means. Now, hopefully what we're doing is starting to give a bit of structure and form and consistency and insight into what that means. Mm. So I'm going to ask you to go back now and, and to erase all these things that you've learned. So back when you, you left your record company and you decided to sort of venture out on your own. Yeah, so I, the, last, the closing year of the record company was frustrating because I, I used to hang up, at, hang out at the computer department, which was three people for the whole company, and I was told not to. Like marketing has nothing to do with uh, uh, a data or digital. What are you doing? And they gave me a little bit of budget just, to, I think, to sort of make me go away. And I said, look, I'll look at, look into this digital stuff, let, and I'll come back. And then they they kind of can that budget, and then this little startup morphed with the Universal, and then morphed with Polygram, became the largest record label in the world. And I thought, no, nah, I'm going to I'm going to explore. Uh, digital feels like this energy again. It feels I could see there was like this interscope energy in startups. So I uh, I nearly ended up working for Napster. I went to New York. Someone recommended me, and I was in their offices when the guy in front of me was trying to buy Napster, and this is the job I was going for. And then the guy down the hall in the same company 
BMG was suing Napster out of existence. And I just thought, this doesn't look a lot of fun. And I, I created a couple of startups. Um, I did a thing called Late Night London, which was like a like a search engine for London. Um, and I did a, create one of the first digital design agencies. Um, I, it, we helped set up the UK Email Marketing Association. And so it gave me a flavor for actually what I really, really enjoyed with this agility and and space and mobility around startups. So we're talking early 2000s. And, and then um, as a combination, I ended up in Australia and I ended up in, a, uh, which was not foreseen at all, in an independent Australian band uh, that did pretty well. Um, we, we, got, we got radio, TV, press, we kind of got just to the threshold of success. And I could see when you when you do gigs in Australia, you, you're like, it's the same thing for everyone, you know, you, you, when you're starting out, you're doing it in a van and you're doing it on a shoestring. But here you might be doing a gig in Brisbane and then driving 10 hours down to Sydney and doing a gig, you know, the next day or the same day or something, you know, same night, um, if you've done one in the afternoon. And so you're sort of really um, schlapping about these huge distances with CDs and and you start to understand marketing and connection with your audience on quite a visceral level. And I realized because of the digital marketing experience, the Napster, Napster experience, that there was a play here. There was the, the, the thing that gave us the most traction. We, we started using SMS. Um, I were doing a gig and people would turn up and stuff like that. And I realized there was actually this, this gap between the artist and the audience was the bit that was needed to be solved. So we created a startup. Um, we created a first independent festival. So we had a community, it's still going. Um, it's called Festival of the Sun. Um, and it occurs every December in uh, Port Macquarie in the sun while we're all in the winter, which is weird to see. Um, but we we had so we had the kind of all the beginnings of like I had the record company experience. We had the independent community, which we had the right market. And so I basically started a, a startup um, and to build the first ever, I, I believe, fan management, audience ma audience management system, system, essentially kind of only fans but an artistic for artists um crossed with like a band camp and we raised a lot of money um like series a level money um built a team here small uh, sorry in australia in sydney a satellite team in the uk um and we were sort of like trying to launch this across continents and it was right at the time of myspace uh, every single meeting I went into, everyone without, you know, I'd get into like three slides of the deck and they would say, but what about not MySpace? And I was like, I don't think MySpace is going to work for these reasons. No, but what about MySpace? And then I must have done 80, 90, 100 investor meetings. Um, and it absolutely <laughs> wore me out, um, literally, figuratively, emotionally, all of it. It was just, you know, I was doing it over three continents. So it was very, very hard and full foolish. But we did have the right market in Australia, we had the right test market, just like Sweden was a really good test market for Spotify. Australia is a very, very replicable kind of westernized market, small enough. Um, I knew what I was doing. I understood the problem. I literally was living the problem. And um, I guess what we're going to talk about, like, I had very high founder market fit. Um, I just could not bridge the gap um, to product market fit, just couldn't get there. Um, and there was a moment where I realized that, and I realized that that gap was just too big. Um, you know, it's going to need three, four, five years. We're still not talking about Facebook being, you know, really popular. iPhone hasn't quite come out. So all the technologies you need to plug into it to make it work. Um, 
just one and even when just as a last thing, we go into record companies and there would be like rows of seats with all like you know the the the, the air on chairs with the plastic on them. And they hadn't hired the digital department yet. And we were we were sort of like, this is, you know, we're like, we'll use this. And we got one offer from a record company. We pitched it to Radiohead's management when they went independent. And so we were all at the right conversations. It just, the market conditions just weren't there. They just weren't there. The gap was too big. And, and it ultimately didn't work. And it, um, it devastated me. Mm. I want to just quickly go back to the... Yeah, that that product market fit, founder market fit, and and I'm wondering if you can talk a bit more about yeah, what like in more detail, what was that gap? So yeah, like here was somebody who had all this experience working in music, had the experience of seeing kind of like trends kind of bubbling up in the music space. Um, you had a grasp of digital, you had all the all the kind of right components. What was missing on the on the product market fit side for you? sometimes it's just timing right they just weren't the market behaviors where at that time as, as nuts as it sounds we, we remember we were artists and we were new managers and we were talking as peers they would say we don't want our artists using digital they're musicians which i i'm now an advocate of that position but uh, you know they they were like this has got nothing to do with music why are you showing us this and also there was you see it in the um in the playlist the spotify and there was this huge fear um, from the industry that if they embrace this this would just completely consume them and take them over again rightly so and so there was this like they almost didn't want to dip their toe in and even try it because they knew by doing that all of the margin that they were making out of cds and and, and digital revenues took ages to start to even begin to replicate their those previous revenues so their instinct was correct it's like the cab drivers with uber right their instinct is correct so you're caught in that I don't know if it's quite the uncanny valley, you know, that, that phrase, but you're caught in a place where you're in limbo, where, yes, I was incredibly um, credible. Um, I think in some ways much more than Daniel Ek. You know, he had no no real business other than as a technical person, as a coder being in that space. But I had lived in that space. My, my parents grew up in the music, and I grew up, grew up with parents in the music uh, industry. You know, I, I've been around it all my life. Um but we just couldn't get people to to cross that gap. I was in one meeting with a, I did a whole round of meetings and, and this guy literally fell asleep. And uh, at the end of it, he woke up and he said, this is all bullshit, bullshit. And it's like, why well, is it my space, my space, my space? And you're just like, what, what do you, you know, what do you do? What can you do with that? It's not, I mean, and then MySpace, I think, folded within, a, you know, Murdoch bought it, and within a year, two years, it was gone. And all of this objection, you know, and once you started to see you could plug APIs into Spotify and, you know, social networks like um, Facebook, you could, you know, amplify what you would, your message, your creativity at that, at that stage. All of these tools, the smartphone, you know, enabled artists to feel like, oh, yeah, maybe I should do digital. That's actually, you know, in part, that could be part of my day. All of those were just, you know, coming down the pipe. And you just can't, sometimes you just can't, unless you've got a lot of capital. Um, uh, and this is, comes up again in the, in the playlist where the guy gives him $10 million and just says, look, you know, as much time as you need to solve this problem. And in some ways that goes back to the artist, right? Like if you, if you go, if you're Interscope and you're backing, you know, um, Fred Durst or Marilyn Manson, in some ways you have to have the same attitude, which is we believe in you 
if it takes three years, four years, five years, it doesn't matter because once you succeed, your success is going to so far outstrip the cost and the investment because you're going to be it's going to be transformational, and that's where I think that's where it gets super super interesting. We didn't have that person um, that was going to do that, um, and, and and I looking back, I can kind of see why because I think we needed three, four, five years to bridge that gap, and I'm not sure that we had the means to do it um, or the or the or the perspective to do it. Mm, so when you look back at that experience and you know, I think something that's important to crystallize here is that you were somebody who'd come from the industry and very much a product of the industry that you were trying to, you know, not disrupt. You were trying to sort of like evolve the industry. Yeah. Um, and it, and so when you look back at that moment and you look back at the, you know, both yourself in that time and the people who you spoke to, was it a sense of like, a kind of a crisis of the imagination, both from the founders, which like, you know, I can see this thing coming down the road, but I can't imagine just how big it's going to be. Or, or do you think it was more about like, when you get told so no so many times, you start to fundamentally question the value of the idea that you're trying to create? It's uh, um, a really good question. Um, the no's are hard. I think no matter what, I, I know people that have found in multiple things and the no's are still hard. You know, it's hard for someone. It comes up in the podcast, again, the, the reason why VCs don't often say no cleanly is they find it really hard, human to human, to say, no, I don't believe that you can do this. You know, that's a hard thing to say to someone. It's much easier to say, I don't think you have, you know, your, your customer lifetime value worked out. That's much easier. Um, I think, I, when when I look back, I think I, I just I'm not sure I, I don't I don't quite know how we would have solved it other than with a huge amount of capital, other than somebody saying, "Here's we see the gap, we understand the gap, we're sophisticated enough to understand the gap that you need to cross, and we understand it's going to take this to, this amount of capital to cross it." It's it's the um, in in WeWork. Um, the SoftBank founder giving Newman $10 billion, right? It's like he, the whole logic of SoftBank was we're going to give the exceptional founders enough capital for them to work it out and completely, you know, transform the market. And I think sometimes that's right. And I think it was, we were in that point, one of those, one of those use cases where that's what probably was needed um, and, and be able to kind of just work it out over a longer period of time. There was no way that we were going to be able to show product market fit metrics within 6, 12, 18 months. We just, because the managers weren't going to use the tools properly, there wasn't the things to plug into. And that and that's really hard. But but as we've talked about, Matt, those are the problems that are the most valuable to solve. That's really what we want exceptional minds, you know, coming out of, coming coming into their sort of, you know, careers or, or, or coming into the start world going, I want to solve those kinds of problems because when you do solve them, they're transformational and the value is exponential and all of those kinds of things. And I, and I think, I think that I think I could have solved the problem, but I just never got into that conversation. I, and I couldn't have had said what I just said to you back then. I didn't, I didn't have the stature, the confidence in myself, um, the, the, the sense of timing to, to even begin to have that conversation. Mm. And, I, and I think you just touched upon something that I think is so, so important for this conversation so if we if we look at how what we've spoken about so far and it's this idea of like 
becoming an exceptional founder with an exceptional idea and in your journey yourself like there was a kind of it was sort of that lived idea right? that lived problem right how does a founder become an exceptional founder well they have to be allowed to become an exceptional founder and how does yeah. an exceptional idea become an exceptional idea it has to be given time and space for that to evolve and i think you know those two things come hand in hand right the idea that a founder has to somehow arrive completely ready made and perfectly attuned to the needs of a, of a, of a vc or some sort of investor but then that raises the far bigger and more important question is how does a founder get to that point if they've never been given the chance? It's, it's the paradox. Mm. It comes, I mean, this is what we're doing, what we're doing. It comes up again and again and again. How do you evaluate a founder that has no real product metrics? If you, if you do try and evaluate them through their product metrics, you drive them and you crazy and you're not a very good investor. You just, it just takes, you know, you just, it's the wrong conversation and it always goes badly unless that founder has networks and leverage and credibility and that, and that kind of enables an investor to make a decision. How do you, if you don't have any of those metrics and you aren't that kind of founder, how do you get a sense um, of that, that founder's potential? And it's exactly the same decision as just to tell another music industry story because it's so illustrative and I, I, I love it. I, I met the guy that sound, um, signed Massive Attack who ran Island Records um, after Chris Blackwell. Really great guy called Mark Moreau. Um, and he's told me a story and he said, we signed Massive Attack um, when they were just a bunch of stoners from Bristol doing sound systems. And at that time, time, me, I think it was him and two colleagues, could sign off on at least three, if not five years worth of development time and in that time, they made Blue Lines and him, they, them and Tricky and I guess Porter said that whole thing transformed British music. And I just love that story. He said, and he because the because the um, postscript to it, he said I would never be able to sign that now, not because mm. of my stature, but he said what we would have done and would analyze all of the essentially the product market fit rather than the founder market fit, and there's no way we would have invested that money in those people, and certainly not when you're talking about you know. In music, I guess it's slightly different founders. You're talking about people from sort of, you know, backgrounds that aren't necessarily very privileged or um, some have, you know, dodgy records, all that kind of, not as a music records, but you know what I mean? Like, they, they, you, you look, if, you, if you assess that individual, I just read the biography of Tricky. If you assessed him, I mean, he would say himself on his own sort of journey, there's no way you would back him with millions of pounds and time. But what they saw in Tricky was the next Bob Marley because they had signed Bob Marley and they understood what it was to have an iconic artist. And in their world, it didn't matter how long it took. He was that he was of that stature. And that is I don't we don't really have a language for that other than great can come from anywhere. Right. Um, and, and venture is always but but venture is searching for those people. And if you look at what who we're elevating, we're trying to find those exceptional people maybe because we recognize that we have sort of extraordinary problems that need to be solved in nonlinear ways. Maybe that's what we all kind of feel that actually, um, you know, so I met someone who's trying to solve, he's, who's trying to solve uh, COVID uh, or, or problems again by analyzing sewage in, in any kind of community. And they said, if you analyze the sewage, you catch all these problems much earlier and much better than any current testing. And it was a really deep problem to solve. And you're like, and they were a really sort of like technical team. You're like, those people deserve a chance. No one's asking them, you know, like to bankroll them for years or even write a check like that we worked out, but they deserve a chance to be able to see if they can if they can translate that founder market fit into something material. 
Um, and, and, and I firmly believe that. And I fir firmly believe that it's not anything goes or anyone goes. It's trying to identify exceptional founders and align them quickly with, with you know, I guess, uh, extraordinary investment and in the sense that it aligns and adds value and, and it, gets, it moves quickly. Um, and I, I think that's where we're moving towards. Mm. And it's so interesting that the, the parallels you know, between the music industry and the startup industry, and and I guess sort of the the inadvertent effect of data on both, right? Because if yeah. you look at the the plight of the musician today, you know you will have a very very skinny pyramid where you'll have uh, you know the Taylor Swifts of the world at the very very top, you know equivalent of the the WeWorks of the startup world gobbling up inordinate amounts of funding and money and support and then you have this very long 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 narrow pyramid all the way down to the bottom where the vast majority of of musicians the vast majority of startups are in which is like access to large funding access to, to time to to development to allow you know a taylor swift or a daniel Eck to, to develop doesn't really exist for 99 percent of of both populations does it no, no, um, it's not. And, and it's useful to think of Airbnb around this. Like, so if you think about you are, you have a nice property, nice cottage, let's say in uh, Dover, for, mm. for sake of argument, you know, before Airbnb and you, and you really took care of it and it was really lovely. How you would find people to rent that would have been really hard and erratic and particularly quality people that you could trust and just kind of, and you and it's the same. It's essentially the same market problem. All of, most founder tech is double-sided marketplaces like that. And in this case, we have, you know, a founder. Let's say the founder is in Dover, and they're trying to solve something in ed, ed tech, education tech. You know, and they've got this deep insight into a particular aspect of learning. Let's say, um, and they re and they and they they themselves have that problem, and they've really solved it because they. You know, for 10 years, they've been playing around with the tools and they've got a community of people. You know, it's the same story, you know, I, that person finds it. And the minute they go, do you know what? I think there's something here. Like it's not we work, but it could be that I could help 20,000 people, you know, that have this. I know have this problem in the UK um, because it's my lived experience. I know this community exists and I know they need this tool. That's the person that we're trying to talk to. That person at, at that moment doesn't really know what to do and their path is once they decide oh i'm going to launch a startup which you know to be fair there's a lot less stigma if they go to their parents let's say they're younger and say oh, i'm going to do a start there's a lot less stigma of going well why don't you get a proper job there's a glamour to it it's socially a lot more acceptable and there are a lot more tools and paths and education for that person but it is still incredibly precarious and is erratic and takes a long long time and that person just wants to fix the problem, right? As quickly as well. They just want the chance to be able to show that they can fix it. And that's all that they're asking for is give me a shot with a small amount of capital, uh, you know, pre-seed, seed. So let's say pre-seed, let's just, just define it as like say up to 150,000 and seed is up to a million. Still a lot of money, but not in startup world. Uh, and all they're doing is saying, give me a small amount of money so I can demonstrate I am this founder to solve this problem. Now, the experience for that founder and therefore all of that, that, the, that archetype of founder worldwide is completely terrible in terms of, uh, of that next step and then how they, how they experience that venture world and their chances of the securing the right capital from the right person in the right time. And therefore, their chances of failure are very high and the chances of them being exhausted 
um, not just financially, but emotionally, mentally within a year to two years is also very high. Now, why is that? The, why does that need to be the case? If we go back to the Airbnb person, we now accept that that person has the cottage. They go on Airbnb. They list it properly. If they take the time, if it's a nice property, people will start finding it. People will turn up. People will start to, you know, there will be that exchange on that double-sided marketplace and it will start to work. And it doesn't, no one's saying that that person is totally on that person to maintain and look after and nurture that experience. You can't get rid of that there. And of course, if they're terrible, it's not going to work. But that person suddenly has a livelihood, can suddenly participate in the economy or in, in the ecosystem that way. And that's the problem. That's the problem is that those those types of founders of which there are millions of them um, and, and inside of that, there, is, there are great people are finding it you know it's so unnecessary how hard it is it's it's like it it's like them trying to rent their cottage before airbnb and it being a nightmare 90 percent of the time and it shouldn't be like that Mm. it's about validation that 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 the idea the problem you're trying to solve is is a problem worth solving well i don't think that's i don't think that's necessarily the investors that's i think a a lot of investors made a mistake they think it's for them to validate the problem I don't think that's the case. I think if the founder has that founder market fit, they are the, and and they are credible, and you'll see behaviors like they're influential in their community, they're trusted, they have authority. You can see all of these things already developed. And I believe founders have to come to the table with that developed. But you can't, you can't, money doesn't solve that. Thought leadership, comms, all of these stuff that you can now use, all of these tools, it comes up again and again. I think it's right that investors expect founders to come to the table with all of that, right? But if they do have all of that, it's not for the investors to suddenly sort of sit there and go, no, I don't think your idea is very good. You know, sorry, sorry, Julie, you know, you know, your thing there in in that education space. There's no marketing. Yeah, all of that has to stop um, because at at this early stage, because Julie knows a lot more about the problem than you do. Right. And, and Julie knows a lot more about what she wants to do in the community. What Julie might not know about is how to structure finance or a cash flow or, um, you know, a six month plan or anything like that. And you should be bringing that structure to Julie. But the, but the bit where Julie and the investor or investors align should not be this feeling as asymmetry of I'm the investor. I know I'm going to validate you and judge you. And my decision is, is, is really important in that. I think a lot of investors get that wrong and it comes down to because they don't know how to evaluate founder market fit. Mm. And and what happens to the founder when they hit that wall? You know, for you personally, what happened when, you know, you could get to product market fit? Well, I, I collapsed. I My whole health collapsed. Um, I, I ended up, I, I felt such a failure. I felt like uh, I'd let everyone down myself down i felt i was never going to have the opportunity again i felt like we were also tantalizingly on the cusp it's very hard to be at radiohead's management pitching something and then they do in rainbows you know a year later and you're like whether we were instrumental that we were out of that conversation a year before at that you know with this idea of go to your audience and and, and i felt like i saw what daniel was doing i thought this is never going to happen again like this is this is something i really really know about and really care about and i've lost all this money I didn't understand that, the dynamics around that. Um, I felt like I let all the people down that we'd employed. And in reality, if I had been on a motorbike and had a massive accident and just couldn't walk um, because I'd fell fallen asleep because I was so exhausted and I couldn't, you know, move for the next few years, um, no one, I, I wouldn't have felt like that. 
and, and no one would have batted an, an eyelid other than, you know, it's just devastating, you know, it, it, but it was literally I, my whole well-being and uh, an emotional state collapsed and I wasn't capable of doing anything. Um, I ended up coming back from Australia, went back to living in my parents' loft and uh, and for I just had to recover. I had to just look after myself and recover from this, something that I just thought was, you know, a, a devastation or apocalyptic for me and it took four or five years before I even wanted to kind of get back around the table or felt like, like I could. I The feeling of failure was just so enormous and opportunity lost it was it was i i think a lot of what good work's been done i know i know obviously you matt do stuff around founder mental health and mental health in general and a lot of things have changed for the better around founder mental health and well-being and people being aware of that and all the signs of that there's so much more support than than before which is i think is amazing and it's an example it's a good example of the industry learning and re-engineering itself and, and, and recalibrating itself around some an aspect they used to ignore but for me yeah it was just like hitting literally like coming off that motorcycle at you know 100 miles an hour hitting a wall and that was the end of it it was just like i was done i couldn't i couldn't do anything else mm. and it's a story we hear so often we've we found is that that like that like you say that that word collapse um and it obviously led to a period of sort of you know being in, the, I guess, the founder wilderness, let's call it that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what brought you back? What brought you back to this idea of going, I think I'm ready to have another go at this? Well, I needed to get out of my parents' loft. That was that was quite a big motivation. Necessity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, it, it, it was the, the Interscope thing. It was like great can come from anywhere. And I was like really interested in the combination of that attitude to talent and startups. And... Um, Thought leadership, you know, like Gladwell and all of those kinds of that, that thinking, I guess, Ted was starting to come out. And I thought, you know what, this is starting to feel interesting again. And I feel well enough again, just about to sort of venture into this. And so I set up Propelia to be this blend of all of it, a, a, a record label for ideas. So enabling people with exceptional ideas uh, and thinking to be nurtured in the way that I had seen really good record labels nurture talent. And, and, and we started out just with that thought. Um, and you know, it, it, we started to meet people who just were thinking amazing things. Um, um, you know, just like what we like living architects or people were reimagining the hundred, you know, three stage economics into the hundred year life or, uh, people using constellation therapy to look, transform the way businesses understood themselves or structurally understood, you know, like a really interesting thinkers. And then gradually that was gravitated more and more towards founders um, simply I guess because they wanted money to to to, to kind of like explore their ventures but we, we we started off with the exceptional thinking first and being a home for that developing that and then became I guess what would be called an accelerator for early stage startups um, that's over a 10 year life cycle but always focused we weren't calling it founder market fit uh, no one was um, we were, we were just modeling early stage founder journeys, like hundreds of them were like creating loads of models. I think the first people to ever do that to try and understand what, what we've been discussing. Were there consistent patterns, insights, frameworks that you could apply um, that consistently revealed exceptional founders? And we started to realize there were. Um, and then I stumbled on the term founder market. I, I didn't invent it, but if you still, if you Google it now, it's not very widely populated. It's hardly ever used. 
And I thought, right, I'm going to use that. I'm going to leverage that because I understand it for all the reasons we've just discussed. I think that's a really useful term. And this industry loves very pithy kind of terms that can be used. And I, and I started talking about it through that term. And then that, you know, really took hold. Um, and, and, it, and it felt really interesting, but only because we'd spent all this time looking at these founder journeys where no one else was really looking at them or valuing them um, because of because of what, we, what, what I guess the journey I've been on. Mm. And so, yeah, that, that, that idea of the sort of necessity it comes in sort of many forms, I guess. And, and I think what, what what's coming up for me is this idea of you kept looking at the like a journey that you went on and seeing a lot of patterns emerging, right? This idea, this sort of gulf between product and founder and market. And it sounds like it's the kind of like redemption in, in, in all of this story that, yeah, there's the failure of the, of the work that you've done and it was, it was the opportunity to kind of really go back and solve it in a really meaningful way, which kind of leads us very, very nicely onto the idea of black box. Um, so I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about it just for anybody who may not have heard this podcast before or may not be aware of what black box actually is and how it, how it sits with that you know, that observation of those stories, those narratives going in these sort of loops and loops and loops. And I'm going to bring in some some mental health uh, jargon here. That, that Freud always talked about the idea that people will always repeat themselves until they find a suitable answer to a question. And it sounds <laughs> like you were watching that question being asked over and over and over again. And so why was, why was Black Box for you the answer to that question? Yeah, I mean, it's a really, really good quote. Um, yeah, so founder market fit started to resonate with people, and I thought this is this was communicating something interesting, and and there was consistently this, this this gap between founder market fit and product market fit, and then you got things like no code loco, which I, I know we've discussed like coming into this, which was I thought a really interesting development. This idea that you don't have to build a full product. When I, when I did my startup, we're talking about we built everything, you know, pretty much from scratch, you know, and 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 you don't need to do that. You can actually launch something really quickly. You know, if you and I had an idea today, we could have it up, you know, by, you know, was it one o'clock now? By five o'clock, probably, you know, like it was something working that tests some of these key assumptions. And I thought that was super interesting as a development. Um, and then I saw things like seed legal, legals, seed fast which um, a massive problem in this space was that, you know, you and I are agreeing, you know, let's go back to Julie. She finds someone who wants to invest. Uh, she then has got to go through all the paperwork with the legal thing, you know, where her um, due diligence on her, her company. Um, and then you get stuck on valuation and all of these things. And C Legals came along. I saw a de- uh, presentation of it um, and we're hopefully uh, partnering with them. So I'm really proud to talk about this you know i saw them present and they said look we've created this thing it's called a seed fast it's based on an american instrument called an advanced subscription agreement and basically what it enables you to do is if julie meets uh, steve you know over over lunch she can pitch him steve really wants to help with this invest in her problem put 100 grand in you know he's an experienced angel investor instead of um getting caught on all the paperwork and all the valuation all the stuff that takes months and drains the momentum generally around the deal and i think massively informs a nine out of ten it's a very short document on c legal's platform i think it's three pages and essentially what it does it says let's defer all of the valuation for six months if an event occurs within that six months that determines the valuation that will dictate the price of my shares and for me coming and giving you this money up front early um and and kind of participating in that risk early 
I want a discount on what those what other people are going to pay for those shares. Let's say if an event happens in month five, and they showed a graph saying we're seeing people have conversations at one and close investment by five. And th this was when I just started to see. I was like, wow, that is that's that's completely transformative because a large part of my journey and everyone's journey is running around trying to close deals. You've got this numbers game and all of this stuff, and you and, and it takes so long. And that's one of the things that's so draining. So they had truncated that to this small window. They've now, I'm told, do they are the large, the, the the most early stage deal flow goes through seed fast, seed fasts in the UK more than any kind of other venture instrument. So it's an incredible achievement, and is and it vindicates what I felt when I saw this. I think it was about a year ago. And what I started to notice was, hold on a second, these are all tools, these are all instruments that are enabling founders to do the same things, become more agile, uh, more fluid, um, act, you know, act in quicker ways and kind of re remove the friction in the double-sided marketplace between founder and investor. Um, me, because I like, like words, but I also like, I know the power of categories. Like I said, everyone loves a prop tech, a fintech, and I was like, I wonder if that's founder tech. And like, like actually, that's in itself is this thing that is this sort of paradox. The venture has no problem going into other categories and disrupting them, but with itself, it's hugely problematic. It doesn't know. It hasn't reinvented itself, particularly the pitch deck, you know, which no one would design now as a tool of a comms tool. It just hasn't been very good. And I was like, well, I wonder if all of these tools are founder tech that actually are the future of venture and are doing all of the things that we've talked about, they're going to actually engineer these different outcomes. And I thought, well, there's no point in me to sort of just thinking this. Uh, so I started the podcast, Founder Tech Decoded, um, and talking to platforms, investors, founders who are all using different aspects of founder tech, whether it's a financial instrument like Seedfast or um, a tool like Vested to reimagine the cap table and make it much more dynamic. And to answer the question, once I had that and the response was, oh, overwhelming much more than i could have anticipated um, and people were like whether this is an actual new venture sector like a prop tech or an ed tech it doesn't matter it's useful in understanding a behavior that's going on and where this could lead and i was like okay well the missing piece that comes up over and over again is this founder market fit you know like how do you measure it how do you get the intelligence on the founder and elevate exceptional founders and then i was like well you know maybe you can't take the entrepreneur out of someone despite despite every i was like well i'll create that myself I, I can create that myself i know enough people i know you matt i know a whole bunch of other people that we can build that and so black box is that it's that missing it's a piece of founder tech which is the missing tool that enables found, found early stage founders exceptional founders and aligned investors um pre-seed seed investors to find and engage identify evaluate each other very very quickly by the lens of founder market fit and we think it's the missing piece you know we think there's a family of all these tools of really good people doing really great and that this is steps into it so that's what black box the mvp should launch um in a few couple of weeks or well, we now early november and we aim to launch the beta properly in early next year and you know hopefully it will behave like the airbnb example we'll just start running and start connecting people in this way and that, that there's no reason why it shouldn't um you know and that's that's the journey to founder tech. Mm, yeah, and, and, it's, and it reminds me of, a, and for anybody who, who wants a, a really good bedtime read of, from the book, Where Good Ideas Come From by Stephen Johnson, he talks about something very similar to that journey that you've just described, that, that ideas evolve with time. And, and you know, he looks at uh, people like 
Charles Darwin. Not that we're saying that Fanatec is, is, is the same size and scale of, of the theory of evolution, but... It's close, it's close, it's close, Matt. It's close, it's, it's not far close. behind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but what he touches upon in, in the book is the idea that if you looked at Darwin's notes, he had kind of like was kicking around the idea for a really, really long time. It was almost completely formed until he had that time and space for the idea to really kind of crystallize in his head, which sounds very much like the kind of journey that you've been on, this idea of like you've been in this space and you know, and I'm going to bring in Einstein now. I'm just I'm name dropping left, right, and centre. But yeah. um, you know, Einstein, when asked you know, what made him different to anybody else, he said, "I'm no smarter than anybody else. I just looked at a problem for longer." Yeah, that's a great phrase. That's a great quote as well. Smart guy, Einstein. Apparently, he was. He knew, he, knew, he knew his onions. Um, <laughs> but uh, I so found I, a market fit. Exactly. Well maybe, well, maybe not. I mean, again, he's a clerk, isn't he? No one would back Einstein to be Einstein. Einstein and, and Marilyn Manson are very similar. You'd never back them before the before the event. It's after the event, isn't it? Exactly that. And it's it, you know, and I think it's you know, the world that we live in now is, is this idea of like you know, we in a sea of data that we should be able to detect and 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 learn from history. But I think what we're exploring here is like. It's sort of yes, but it's sort of like yes, there can be lots of really informative things that, that we can be deduced from from what's happened before. But it really takes that kind of like secret source of looking at a problem for a really long time and allowing a kind of an idea like black box to emerge. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I genuinely believe it's gonna, it's just gonna be one of the things that runs, and then hopefully in two three years it'd be like this conversation will sound crazy. Like, like it's just how it runs, right? It's like how Uber runs. <laughs> or, you know, like, I, I really think we can be in that place where, let's go back to Julie in, in, in Dover. Like, she would just download, she, the logical thing would be she'd download Blackbox and it would start running. It would start connecting her and then we're obviously bunching, building a whole bunch of tools and lenses that, that make that identification and evaluation engagement work. Obviously, you've got to do that piece. But why can't it run like that? And I think we will get to that point where that where that's happening and then if it if it can and does there is such a demand for this because it most people's experience is so poor that if it does do that then you have to then extrapolate out and go well maybe we can clip clip away at the nine out of ten failure right rate. things are going to fail especially it's high risk it's early stages emergent it's going to fail but what if in that nine to seven, you know, drop from nine to seven, and I'm, I'm just speculating that number, you know, what we're doing is catching a lot of more exceptional founders and we're enabling capital to find and back them in a lot more efficient ways early on. That's transformative. Just that point swing itself, one point swing from nine to eight would be massive. But, you know, in any financial market, that's a massive swing, right? Like that, that, that would be absolutely transformative. And then you start to think, well, what could be unlocked? You know, what can what could be what's the potential that could then be unlocked? Um, I don't personally think I'm going to be the person that goes along for that that stage of the journey. You know, like in terms of I think there's better people than me to scale it to that. But you can start thinking about, well, if we can unlock the potential of Julie's all around the world, not guarantee their success, but at least enable them to just start properly. What does that, that? That's the thing that really excites me. And with founder tech in general, I think you know it, 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 it's it's going to be the best when it kind of works but gets out of the way. If you know what I mean, it just does things, it just makes you do things. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and I think for me something that came up when you were speaking there, it it's almost like the what yeah, if black box you know could move the needle on the on the failure rate, but I think also 
if black box can keep people in the kind of in that founder world right so if you, if you look at your journey where you know you you, you tried and failed and then you've tried again it, it sounds like you know, if if black box allows founders to to have another go to to allow them to sit with a problem for longer to allow that sort of maturation in in thought and feeling to take place then you get you kind of you know talking about double-sided markets you not only have higher you know, success rate for investors but you also have a better opportunity for a founder to find the idea that they they should be trying to solve yeah and this and this is the this is the irony isn't it the dance at the moment in the founding investor we, we've saved the, the the worst culprit to last the pitch deck right so the pitch deck is the tool that com- communicates and conveys this conversation um transmutes it you know for almost all conversations globally there's different variants of it right but at at, at that moment that that pitch deck is the, the the bizarreness of it is almost every founder hates their pitch deck and, and and it goes through so many iterations it's quite useful if it was just viewed as a conceptual tool to kind of get get what you're thinking clearer you know that, that it's quite quite useful tool for that but the irony is is that it's it's like what i was talking about kind of pre seed fast where people are going back and forth on the value right and it goes out it goes on for ages and it drains it the pitch tech conversation is really um really really poor in that the investors do this dance with it and will ask you know with us with associated like go three years in, in in financial projections or six years or page seven doesn't look quite right and then the irony is the minute the the actual transaction happens they forget completely about the pitch deck and the uh, and the um, the projections generally there's there's so you've got this kind of phantom limb hanging around in the in the in the conversation that serves no doesn't really serve much value and i think that if we can get rid of a lot of that as well it will it, just be a lot more honest it's like the founder being able to say clearly this is what i'm trying to solve this is why check me out this is this is where i've been this i can corroborate who i am and the influence and the credibility and the way i behave this is what i need to kind of fuel and fund the next three to six months to prove again that i am that person if you are aligned with that and believe in that problem and would like to help you solve that problem i need 100 grand and here's a tool that is and i need it within the next two weeks not you know four months um and and i want to engage with that cleanly and clearly that I think then enables just it's just about that initial pinch point to happen better before larger sums are sort of talked about before but it, it just it just enables that to happen in a way that just doesn't seem to happen consistently um, very well at all in, in the industry and I think is it's the secret window that I I think privilege would be overstretched but I've, I've i've been fortunate to kind of listen now to a lot of people talk about this and it's that problem it's that moment it's that dance it's 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 that conversation it's those tools that are causing most of the failure rate and causing exceptional founders to give up not not do what you talked about just keep going explore and and, and sorry and, and, the, and the other thing about the pitch deck as well is these exceptional founders is everybody knows that it's going to iterate or, or obviously what's called pivot right so even if you put your money in if the founder can you put your money in on you know uh, november the 10th if they come to you on november the 16th and say i want to pivot the, the investor goes no problem great tell me why but if they come to you on november the 8th 
and say, I want to pivot, well, then it shows you're incompetent. You don't know what you're doing. Your pitch deck's not right. Go back and do your pitch deck. Go back and spend another couple of months. And that that's just, I mean, what is that, Matt? Like, what, what is going on there? Like, you know, like five days later, once the money's come in, I guess it's like any transaction. If you bought a house, you know, now that's your house and you're sort of vested in it. But two days before, I guarantee you, if the, if the founder turns around and said, look, I, I think the problem's slightly different because, you know what, I went to this conference and I got this massive insight and this is what now why I want to do this. Even if it's valid, it's seen as weakness. Whereas five days later, after the money's gone in the bank, it's seen as a strength or something to, at least to be discussed. Hmm. Well, that's it. It, it. it goes back to the problem we discussed earlier. It's, it's you know, which one comes first, the great founder or the great idea? Um, and I think that it, you know, it's that kind of eternal problem of like you know does a great dear idea evolve or does a great idea come ready-made and and perfect I, I very much argue it's it's the first one and i think the same with a founder right it's this idea that it's it's a founder's like attempts to solve a problem that should reveal whether the, the idea is good enough and if it isn't it should be on the founder to help find the right idea yeah, yeah. What comes up is, uh, regularly is this idea of a fast no, right? A founder would rather receive a fast no from an investor than a, a slow yes, right? What we need in this place is not from the founder's perspective. I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm. You have to back me, you know. I'm just because of who I am. No one wants that. What they want is like, if you again, if you're aligned and you want to solve the problem with me, then then we should be able to move quickly, which has now been demonstrated, right? That, that capital can move in that way. From the investor's point of view, there shouldn't be an expectation that just because they put the initial money in, that they're going to have to put in large sums, that there's a follow-on round. I think there's a whole new stage of venture, which is about giving people enough means to prove that they can cross this divide from founder market fit to product market fit, and then have another conversation, right? Then have a proper conversation, because the investor now knows the founder, they've got a lot more data, but data through lived experience, and then to say, right, are, are you the right founder to take this forward? How much, what, what does that look like? How much capital is it needed? You know, how long is that going to take? Then those questions become relevant. Like the music industry that didn't really want things to change. If you go back to most executives now, they'd much rather go back to the time that I was talking about when I worked there, when it was CDs and the huge margins and, you know, you could sell millions of records really quickly. It was all glamorous. They'd love that. So there is, there is, there is an aspect where there are quite a few people in this system that want it to stay the same. It works for them. You know, they like they like being able to have, you know, pick of all of the decks coming in and being able to make decisions and kind of like it's it they like that. And so there may be it may be the case for if it doesn't work. There's no reason technically, I don't think. We we'll we'll get things wrong. Um, you know, we'll work out what works, but solving the problem I don't think is the issue. I think I think Propelia and the team, you know, that we've built can solve this problem. I, I and I think it's the right time to. And I think founders want it. And I think forward-thinking investors, that's been some of the most encouraging things from the podcast, is there are a crop, and they generally tend to have been founders, which makes sense, right? So they're like uh, founder-driven capital or solo capitalists, people who have sat in this seat, known this problem, who are who, who want to be involved and associated with the future, right? They want to be they want to be seen as forward-looking. There are those on both sides. Well, founders obviously want to solve this problem. And if they could download an app and it just start working, like I said, they don't want guarantees, they just want that access to that um I, there is there is no there's enough of a market to make this work and then i think if it does work sufficiently it will drag everyone um you know um to it 
where whether it's black box and there's no reason why it sh shouldn't be or something of or there may be two or three solutions in the market as generally happens you know this will happen in some nature on some level the reason it might not happen just to sort of you know counterbalance that is again because people certain people like the inefficiency you know they like they like the way it is um they don't believe that i do hear they don't believe that founder market fit can kind of be productized and they don't want that to happen um there are certain founders who are just don't know it could be any better they don't know that there's another way of doing it and they they are sort of priced in all of the frustration there are some founders that the system really works for. They generally tend to be sort of white middle class males based in London or any major capital city. That's unfortunately still the case. Um, but but who knows, right? And who knows how who how baked in the intransience of the market is? I, I don't know. My instinct is is that it, what will happen is if we can just even just in East London, you know, in Shoreditch itself around that area. I know it's a cliche, but you have to start somewhere, have, have an anchor, sense of gravity. There's enough activity there that if we just get the right people doing it in the right way, I think it will shift everything. But maybe I've completely underestimated that. Um, and, you know, humans don't like change. And, you know, even though they hate their pitch deck, they're sort of like, well, I spent three months on my pitch deck. Why should I use your app? You know, like, who knows? But that's that's the bit. My instinct is if we can get the right people using it, then everyone would like, 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 Uber is a good example of that, right? You know, or uh, the people will migrate or Monzo is a good example of that. And one of the things we're looking to do is kind of slightly make it us on them like Monzo did. Like if you're using this, you are forward thinking. This is how it should work. But, um, you know, I think Seedfast is a really good canary in the coal mine bellwether for this. It's proved that, you know, something that people said wouldn't work. They productized an instrument that has done everything, you know, that, that I think Bandtech should do well. So, but I me, mean, you tell me. Do you think? Do you think? Do you think as as a kind of closing that where, where do you put our chances as, as we see it today? Well, I think I think for me it, it comes back to this idea of like you know who's the right person to solve this, right? And I'd say that like somebody who spent a significant portion of their career looking at the problem and has allowed that kind of to percolate and to bump into you know the experiences that you've had in other industries and you know i'm a firm believer that the best ideas tend to come when industries overlap each other and the people who spend time in that in those fringes um and i think you know i've gone through the startup experience myself i've, I've pitched ideas i've been through accelerators i've done all of that and i think what was what was really glaring for me was the founder stopped being a person and just kind of came a bit of a kind of like a delivery mechanism for a pre-agreed idea if that makes yeah. sense and, and and it kind of the that, that sense of alienation and and strangeness i think that comes with the founder experience is is just not sustainable right if we think about the, the talent pool you know let's take east london right i mean let's say let's say there are 10 vc firms in london and let's say there are 100 ideas every year that kind of get pitched to them and let's say, and, and we use it. Times up by 100, Matt. It times up by 100, right. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. But, and then let's say that 90% of those uh, don't go anywhere. You know, how long does it take before you know that VC industry has, has basically gone through its local ecosystem over and over and over again, right? So, And I think the problem is, is this is where you get into sort of the, the diminishing returns on the quality of product and the diminishing returns on the 
the, the value of the product itself. Like look at the kind of Deliveroo kind of, you know, instant groceries. You know, they there are business models that require hundreds of millions of pounds to be built. And if you look at the, their performance in the last 12 months, it's been appalling. And, you know, you've gone through a, a whole industry of like instant on-demand groceries have gone through a kind of business cycle in, in like a fifth of the time of a normal industry, right? Yeah. And so I think for, for me, like if things don't change, you know, investors will become more fearful of taking chances on more unusual ideas. Yeah. And, and fewer founders will want to try and solve really, really hard and small problems. Yeah, and that that's that's where it gets really exciting as for another conversation. But it's like when when we start, if this just works, and as I said, when it works, it should just work in the background and get out of the way. Shouldn't be really talking about black box. It just kind of happens, right? Mm. You suddenly get the capacity to think about problems at different scale, different inflection points, different timelines. All of those things become part, factored in, baked in, rather than you know how quickly does your cocky stick graph go up it's actually no it's going to take five years to solve this problem Mm. Um, but that's okay and yeah it's going to change but actually because we've got three investors who really understand it and been with us from the beginning we're in a much better place or i've gone for like you know 18 months and i'm no longer the founder i'm I'm no longer the right person there's the other myth of the, the founder has to be the person that takes it all the way you know all the way through it's all iterations why is that the case? I, I, you know, you wouldn't do that in employment, would you? You wouldn't say that the person you employed year one is the person to kind of scale at something in year three in a different role. Um, so all of that, all of that's the, that's where we want to get to, right? Like launch this, and then all of those things become in play because it's like, what does it mean to be small? What, what, what does that? What is that? Like, what's what's the value of it being? So you start to kind of get into all those kinds of territories, which are. To me, what we should be talking about, we shouldn't be talking about pitch decks and nine out of ten failure rates and even found the you know mental health or that. We shouldn't be talking. That shouldn't be the stuff that that's that's symptomatic of something that's inefficient, right, and dysfunctional. What we should talk, be talking about is Julie has the insight because of the last five ten years to fix a really valuable aspect of education in under 11s. Do you know what I mean? That's what we should be talking about. How do we help Julie do that? Not guarantee her success, but how do we find you and help her really quickly go continue on that next stage journey? Because Julie's exhausted her own capital and she shouldn't be putting, you know, her, her mum's house at risk. Like, how do we help those people? Um, not to introduce another term right at the end, but you know, I, I know you know this, but a couple of years ago we were calling them propellers. You know, that we don't use that term as much, but it's interesting. It's like people who can move things forward in a significant way deserve status. They deserve mm. status, and they deserve to be recognised because are, who? Where else are we going to get that change to come from? It doesn't seem to be from the top, top down. No, absolutely. Um, Thank you very much, Dan. For anyone who's listening to this and wants to sort of dive into to Black Box, where should they go? We are actually doing a small beta round. Um, we don't have Black Box, so otherwise <laughs> we would be using it, but because um, that would be the best way to use the tech. Um, but we're doing a small round of up to 150k to fund literally the next six months of the, of the launch. We don't think we need any more than that, so you can hit me up around that. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm going to keep doing the Panatech Decoded podcast that's another good way to keep in the conversation as now 
I think we're at, you know we're in the third series at the twenty second or twenty third episode. There's some really great people on there that 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 have different aspects of this and carrying different aspects of it. Um, you can hear Anthony Rose of Seed Eagles talk about Seedfast. You can hear Eamon Kerry talk about founder driven capital. Uh, you can talk about Justin Langan on on, on reimagining debt um, capital. Francesco from Silicon Roundabout about how you build community. There's some really, really good stuff. So um, that's another good way to kind of get in the conversation. But um, yeah, I'll put all of that in the in the show notes. Amazing. Dan, thank you very much. Thank you, Matt. It's been a pleasure. It's been an interesting uh, conversation to be on the other side of the mic. But thank you so much. <laughs>